The views on this podcast belong uniquely and solely to the mouths from which they emanate. Here we are, and this is what it's like. Welcome to the Weekly Linguist. Jarrett, who are we talking to today? Well, you didn't introduce yourself. Am I really who matters on this episode, though? <laughs> uh, yes, I was so excited that I did not introduce myself. Uh, I'm Lisa Sprouse. And I'm Jarrett Allen. And Jarrett, who are we talking to today? Well, for the very first episode of the Weekly Linguist podcast, remember our episode last week was our introduction, so this is our first episode, official episode. We are talking to... Judy Maxwell of Tulane University, who is very special to both of us for lots of reasons. And so it was most appropriate that we let Judy kick this off for us. Yeah, I would say Judy has definitely been very fundamental to both of our careers from baby linguist to arguably maybe successful adult linguist. (laughs) Well, look, Lisa, this podcast is Two linguists and an anthropologist that knows enough to ask questions, okay? <laughs> so you, you, you are the linguist here, and um, Judy is actually a linguist and an anthropologist, and an amazing one both. I must apologize that we had some tech issues whenever we were recording this episode. Um, so the actual, most of the conversation for this uh, two-part that we're going to have with Judy is just going to be her and Jarrett, because it did not matter what I tried... I could not get on to this conversation with any link. So we tried a few different audio sources, my phone, my computer. I'm not sure what it was that wasn't letting me on, Um, you know, and earlier in the day before we did the interviews, um, my partner was actually defending his dissertation in my living room. So shout out to Dr. Zio. Uh, (laughs) We love you. Well, I love you probably more than Jared does. (laughs) Um, Love you and miss you. Um, and when he was doing his defense, the internet kept going out. And I would just hear this, like, frustration of him being like, hello, hello, where is everyone? <laughs> um, so I don't know if it was just my internet that day that I just could not get onto any of the um, recording sessions that we were doing. Well, let me take this opportunity to also say that this has been a learning experience for both of us. Um, the I would hope that the our listeners would forgive us on our first few episodes because the audio quality is not perfect. Now, we I, we did do our homework. We believed we knew what we were doing, but there's always something that you learn. And so we've had to learn to mix and had to learn to, you know, get people to use headphones. And sometimes the, the quality is not as, as good as, as other times with connection-wise. And so we believe we've got the first few episodes sounding good now but they might not be perfect and we would ask a little bit of understanding on that as we get started so we had so much to talk about with judy that it's going to be split into two episodes and on this first one i think our focus is language diversity correct Jared? yeah um so what i wanted to do with these first two episodes is set the stage for the podcast itself so as we've talked about in the introduction The episodes of this podcast are going to be focused on a language of the world or a structure in the language of the world. It's just what makes our podcast unique. However, the first few podcasts, I wanted to set the stage. So instead of talking about individual languages, we want to talk about some concepts and this idea of 
why there are so many languages in the world, language vitality, kind of the background of the diversity of languages, languages that grow, languages that die, languages that um, change. And so this episode, we're talking to Judy about the how languages change and develop and split and do all of the crazy, funny things that, that linguists study and why language is so diverse. And Judy brings in some great examples from from her research over the years. And I've mentioned a couple of mine. And um, it's a great conversation. And in the next episode, we'll talk more about language death and revitalization. But the point of these first two episodes is to talk about basically the language diversity around the world and language vitality. And then going forward, we'll be able to talk more about the actual languages themselves, which is the point of the podcast. Yeah, and I really think that this is a good place to start with the podcast because it is really giving an introduction to what is cool about language in general, what language diversity is. A lot of the questions that I think we were first exposed to on our journey as linguists, and it's only fitting because Judy was the one that really answered these questions for us, and I think it's good for our listeners, linguists and non-linguists alike, that if you're going to join us on this journey about languages and what makes them cool, that you're going to kind of get the same introduction that we did. Um, And I think that's a really special thing for us to start with. I've always considered myself very fortunate to be able to work under Judy because she's such an incredible human being and so knowledgeable. Some people can talk a lot about a little or a little about a lot. Judy can talk a lot about a lot. And uh, I've always considered myself very fortunate to be her student. So in this sense, everybody that's listening to this podcast can have a little glimpse of Judy in this episode. All right. So let's really kick off our first weekly linguist with Judy Maxwell. Okay, cool. There we go. Well, today we're talking to the great and illustrious Judith Maxwell goes by Judy. Quick story. My first paper that I turned into Judy in language death, I put on the top of the paper, Judy Maxwell, and I got it back with the word Judy corrected from J-U-D-Y to J-U-D-I-E. This, this passive aggressive way of Judy telling me, call me by my real name. <laughs> Thank you. Yeah. Uh, Judy Maxwell is a professor at Tulane University. She is not only a professor, but she is my professor. She is a, a Mayanist. She works in, in Mayan languages, spends a lot of her time in Guatemala, and uh, also works on language revitalization through the Tunica Project, uh, which we're hopefully going to have an episode about one of these days. But um, Good. yeah, Judy, a little bit of uh, introduction. You're a Tennessee girl. I am, yes. And indeed. I know for a fact that she prefers the Tennessee sausage. Oh, yeah. <laughs> so much. And Tennessee molasses. That's true. You can't. You cannot get good molasses in Louisiana. That's true. Good, good cane syrup, but you can't get good molasses. Judy buys that sausage uh, by the bulk and freezes it. <laughs> and uh, Judy, right now you're working on a couple of books. Um, tell yeah. us about that really quick. All right. Well, uh, the first one is in press, getting printed getting formatted and printed right now. Yes, yes. Uh, this is um, called Kemchi Buch Pa'oshi Jabar Kachikel Kiche Tsutuhir 
Uh, and uh, we also we gave it a subtitle in Spanish in case that title didn't mean anything <laughs> to people. And the Spanish subtitle is Arte de los Tres Idiomas. And this is um, an intertextual reference to a set of documents that were done by the first linguists, the first Western linguists working in Guatemala in the 16th century, who were basically priests. And three different priests wrote three different documents with the name Arte de los Tres Idiomas, which were basically sketch grammars of three of the Mayan languages that all belonged to the Quichean branch of the Maya family. And they compared Cachiquel, Quiche, and Tzutujil, and noticed that these languages are very similar to one another. They're as similar as Spanish, Portuguese, and Italian would be. That's pretty close. Uh, within the uh, Proto-Indo-European family. And uh, so, but when... Uh, they actually said Arte de los Tres Lenguas. And so we're calling our book Arte de los Tres Idiomas to emphasize that uh, the Mayan languages today have gained recognition, official recognition by the government, not as official languages, but as indigenous languages and their right to exist is now guaranteed in the constitution and by a separate law about languages. And so... Uh, we are putting this book forward. It's really uh, exciting because it has a sketch. Oh, I know. I can see you're excited. No, uh, I'm, just, I'm listening. I'm listening. <laughs> okay. it, has, it has a sketch overview of the, what's in common between all three languages that's in Spanish because this book is being published in Guatemala in Spanish that describes what's the same, what's what they, these languages share. And then it's got a section in which each language has a grammatical description given in that language. So these will be the first grammars of Mayan languages in Mayan languages. Nice. And not only that, nice. but all the other grammars to date that have been published in any language stop at the level of syntax, if they get that far, stop at the level of syntax. And these grammars include semantics and pragmatics. So these will be the first grammars in the languages and the first grammars of any kind to include uh, the semantics and pragmatics. And the Spanish overview also includes semantics and pragmatics. So really excited about this um, book coming out. And we have already given a couple of presentations on this at international conferences. And so a lot of the um, of official government-sponsored uh, academies of the other Mayan languages are waiting for this book to get out so they can model descriptions in their languages and start this kind of renaissance of linguistic description of Mayan languages in Mayan languages by Mayan language speakers. So that's the first book, and it's in press right now. That's Judy, going back for a second, and then we'll move on. Every time I talk to you, I learn something. I just, every time I talk to you, there's a, I have three references in my work in the diction, in the, in the Philippines that start arte de la lengua. And I didn't realize that that uh -huh. was, that maybe that was a Spanish thing, not necessarily a Philippine thing there. Arte de la lengua Visaya, arte de la lengua Visaya Hiligaina, 
These were Domingo Esguera and Alonso de Mentirida. So this was must be something that they were doing all across their sphere of influence. But at the time, it depends on what era you're looking at, because during the, the colonial era, era in the 15 and 1600s, and, and the, in the view of the Spanish clerics, lengua was not uh, disrespectful. And if you look at the official dictionary of the Spanish language today, it's uh, Diccionario de la Real Academia de la Lengua Española. So they're still using lengua as a generic phrase for language. But what has happened in Guatemala is that the word idioma, which also means language, has been used only, in, you know, with at least in the 1900s, was used only to refer to Spanish. And the indigenous languages were referred to either as lengua or as dialectos. Yeah. yeah. And I've ha- I've heard people t- in talking about hearing hearing a Mayan language being spoken and then saying, "Están hablando lengua." Uh-huh. You know. So that's lengua, and it's not a uh, a language. And so, but this is a, a distinction and a way of showing disrespect for uh, other languages, other forms of communication that we shouldn't retrospectively put back to the colonial people that were writing these dictionaries, because that was a term that was in general use in Spain to refer to all languages. Right, right. Well, Judy, what we want to talk about today, I've given you Mission Impossible. And I know if any, if anybody could handle it, it would be you. But is it going to blow up? Maybe I can make a little effect. I can add it to the <laughs> some sound effects. Um, but right. you're actually going to be our very first episode that we that we release because the purpose of the podcast is to do something that other podcasts are not doing, and that is to talk about the world's languages. And uh, mm-hmm. most of the other podcasts, at least that I know of, they're talking about English. They're talking about linguistics in general. A lot of it turns to be etymology. Very interesting stuff. Um, uh, Martha Billens is doing a podcast on field notes and how to do field work, which is fascinating as well. But ours is about the languages of the world. So we have people like Karen Rice going to talk about Slavey, Patty Epps going to talk about the Nada Hoop languages, um, a, a Cebuanist, Michael Tanan Kingsing, and then um, David Gill talked about syntactic categories in Indonesian and, um, and so on. So we wanted to start with you because what we wanted to start with was a conversation on language diversity. Now, that's a huge task. Just basically talk about why are there so many languages in the world and then also how they're born, how they die. And again, not an end. You'd have to take a class with Judy to get into all of it. But we can talk about. You'd have to talk, take several, several classes. classes, but just talk about um, the basic idea. And um and then I think Martin Hospital Math is coming up to talk about typology of languages and the, the world atlas of language structures. And so, Judy, the first question that I sent you, and I, I put in I put in in big yellow highlight, this is not going to be very specific. It's conversational, uh, it's going to be a conversational episode, which is this will I think this will work out really good. But the first question that I asked, I got to thinking language diversifies itself 
basically because of two reasons, time and language change, and also languages that get split, right? So this, these people live on this side of the mountain. These people live on this side of the mountain. Over time, they're going to speak slight, they're going to be slight variations. Um, over a long period of time, they'll develop into two different languages. So if you're looking at language change, what in your view is really the impetus for language change? Why do languages change? Again, a very, very broad question, and we can't get into yeah. specifics, but generally speaking, what, why don't we just all talk the same for hundreds and hundreds of years? Well, for one thing, you know, what I usually say in um, <clears throat> when we talk about historical linguistics or when we talk about dialectology is that people are lazy. And uh, if, if you look at processes of language change in the terms of natural processes of language change, which usually we're talking about at the ph phonological level, but we can also talk at the morphological and syntactic levels. But uh, what the most common process is assimilation, that things that are next to each other become more similar over time. And so... Why? Because it's just easier. So if you were to take, for example, the prefix AD, which means toward, right? And then you were to put it on a bunch of different words, like simulation, similar, become similar. Instead of saying ad simulation, you say assimilation. Because, it, first of all, it was easier to do another S than to do a D and then an S. And then, if you actually say assimilation, you say assimilation. You don't say assimilation, right? So you've actually simplified again by just throwing out the extra S. And why do you do that? Because it's easier, right? And so there is kind of a move to uh, be efficient. Uh, or if you prefer the other way to be lazy, to be able to just speak easily. But of course, you know, if you assume that language arose at a specific evolutionary point in time, uh, so we'll, we'll do a monogenesis for a moment, a monogenetic hypothesis. It arose at one point, and then those people spread out across the, the, the globe speaking. And then because, as you say, they were no longer in contact with one another, there, these natural processes uh, were affecting different segments in different places at different times. And so over time, it gave us a diversity of languages. But if it were the case that we were always simplifying, that would lead us to a very strange hypothesis that these first languages were incredibly complicated and we've been uncomplicating them throughout history. And you would think that would leave us with a maximally simple language. And of course it doesn't because countering this total process of making things easier, <clears throat> we have processes that recomplicate the language. So just as we have assimilations, we can have dissimilations. We can make things less similar. You know, we have examples from Proto-Indo-European where two successive uh, murmured consonants like buh and duh uh, in a row in, in successive syllables dissimilated. So one of them became non-murmured, right? Um, 
And so that's a process that then makes things more different. And in addition, you have metathesis, right? That just switches things around. And of course, we have a lot of spontaneous uh, metatheses that we call spoonerisms, right? Like he hissed my mystery lecture and stuff like that, um, where items switch positions. And a few languages use uh, metathesis as a productive part of their grammars so that there are some uh, Suan languages that use metathesis as a way of showing different tense aspect markers. But we find it in English. One of the famous ones in English is uh, in the word ask, mm-hmm. right? which yep. shows yeah. up in Old English as axon, and that had the K before the S. And then it switched to ask. And this is one that's actually interesting because it's switched a couple of times. So in modern English, you have the standard where people say ask, but you have a lot of people who say axe. And like in, in the song about the Audubon Zoo, right? They all axe for you. Um, this was actually a systematic metathesis that went through a whole bunch of words. So the word for that we have today, lisp, started off as lips. And the word that we have today, cops, meaning a small grove of trees, started off as copsa, right? So the, these metatheses of the S and a voiceless obstruent have happened, have switched places in lots of words. So metathesis is another way to recomplicate things. And then uh, there are other processes like deletions and appenthesis, putting in extra stuff, um, which are all ways of of recomplicating the language. And then there are all sorts of weird historical accidents that like nobody knows why a certain change came about, but there it is. And then that gets passed down, right? You know, you're not supposed to admit that you can't remember something in front of uh, your PhD professor. I forget the name of this process, but I remember talking in Zinder's class about the word for an apron used to be napron. And they go from a napron. And was this, it's not folk etymology. I'm forgetting what the term for it was. No, it's recutting. Recutting, that's it, yeah. And then you go to an apron. And so it now becomes apron because the people that know the rule for A and Ann believed it to be an apron. And so I guess over these might sound like small changes, but over hundreds of thousands and thousands of years, they can develop into two languages yeah. that are incomprehensible, mutually incomprehensible. But then you also have. Well, you know, go ahead. I just wanted to say about that example. What's interesting about that example is that napron was part of a whole series of words that had to do with cloth coverings, right? So we have, for example, napkin, that is a small piece of cloth that covers something. And we have napery, which refers to all your household linens, right? And that end didn't get recut because you would have said a napkin or we wouldn't have said unappery because it's a mass noun, but why did we just recut 
an apron. Why did that become an apron and we don't say an apkin? One of those accidents that you talk about. Yeah. But then also these languages, as they're spreading around the world, um, they also come in contact with each other. And after they've 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 yeah. changed they've changed for for hundreds of thousands of years, and they start coming in contact with each other, and they start changing each other. Oh yes. So we have uh, a lot of language uh, phenomenon that come about at the contact, you know, at that surface of contact. And you can tell a whole lot about the history of language by uh, how that contact plays out. So the easiest thing to see is borrowing lexicon. You just borrow new words. And now these days when we have international communication, you can get words from all over the globe you know, depending on how thick your social networks are. Uh, so a lot of words from a lot just keep showing up. So borrowing vocabulary is a really easy way uh, to see the way that uh, languages have come together. Uh, and if you get enough borrowing, it can actually not just add to your lexicon and enrich your lexicon, but it can actually change the structure of the language. So uh, a fantastic example of that, again, is English, right, where we borrowed enough French words that the English phonemes that had been just had allophonic variation, like the difference between F and V. So it used to be that Fs were word initial or word final and Vs were between voiced segments. But because French had initial Vs, now we have two different phonemes, F and V. We still have some words that alternate like knife and knives, roof and roofs, hoof and hooves, all those uh, that show the older form, but we have phonemic distinctions between feel and veal. And you can see, for example, in places like Guatemala, where you've had uh, Spanish, in contact with Mayan languages for 500 years, that the, the way the Mayan language phonemic inventory has changed. So it's not that they're putting Spanish phonemes in traditionally Maya words, but now when they borrow from Spanish, they don't have to adapt the Spanish word to their own phonology because they can now pronounce things like voice stops, like ba, da, and ga, which right. they didn't have before. So they now have those and can then just borrow directly. You mentioned um, social networks and things like this. Um, most alarmists talk about the globalization of the, of, of, of the world. And a lot of people believe that that's going to lead to homogenization of, of language. And it, it's hard to imagine, but I, I will ask this. Do you think globalization will have the effect of more languages or fewer languages or no effect at all? Well, that's a great question. Um, well, I think we can already see that, that some of the globalization processes are leading to the spread of certain languages. So there are some languages that refer, we refer to as killer languages. Mm -hmm. And these are languages that when they come into context situations have so much more 
political power, economic power, or sometimes it's spiritual power, that it can be a language of conversion, uh, that they are drowning out the smaller languages, the languages with less economic or political power. And it isn't, you know, sometimes there's an actual attempt to get rid of the other language, so to prohibit its use. And that sometimes works and sometimes doesn't. You know, English was illegal in Great Britain for 300 years, or it was illegal to speak English in the hearing of a Norman for 300 years. And we still have English. Of course, it's very Norman English, but we have English. But so, but even without that actual making a language illegal, if your access to a high paying job or the ability to go to school and get an education that would allow you to be an engineer or a computer programmer or a linguist depends on a hegemonic language, a prestige language, and speaking your own language is going to get you no economic advantage and have you suffer discrimination, many parents choose not to speak their own language to their children, even if they say that they, you know, love their language and they're respected and they're so proud of the culture that's embedded within it. But at the same time, they don't want their kids to be discriminated against. They don't want them to have economic opportunities denied them. And so I know many uh, parents in Guatemala who have chosen not to teach their indigenous language to their children, but to teach them only Spanish so that they won't be discriminated against. Well, this is the same thing that happened in Louisiana. Yes, with French, exactly. You've been stigmatized. And so the grandparents' generation weren't teaching the kids. And by the next generation, and then those kids, they their kids had no French at all. And that's I hear that story every time I talk to somebody about their grandmother. And, you know, the United States as a whole... Is, is a country in which many people have, have ancestors that came from somewhere else. And the general model for the United States is three generations to extinction. Right. So the first generation still speaks their language and learns English. The next generation, the kids can understand both, but they usually are English dominant, and they pass on only a few words to their kids so that the kids have very little they can say to the grandparents. And then those grandchildren do not pass the language on to their children. So that's three generations and gone. So that's, a, you know, we have, and the killer language, the big killer languages right now, or you probably wouldn't be surprised, are English and Mandarin. And then we have other things going on for English, for example, so that if you look at, uh, commercial airlines, right? All commercial pilots, regardless of where they're flying, if they're flying in international airspace and they're going to land in another country, they have to be able to speak English because that's the language that's agreed on for tower instructions. Right. Right. right? So there is this privileging of some languages which is going to make them more desirable. And 
then people who are speaking minority languages would have to work much harder to maintain their languages. Um, I remember a Congreso de Estudios Mayas conference in Guatemala where one of the indigenous leaders, uh, Dr. Demetrio Cochti Cushiv, who is the first uh, Maya to get a PhD, which he got in Belgium in sociology, was giving a talk on the sociological relationship of the languages. And he pointed out that it's always been the Maya who have had to become bilingual or trilingual or multilingual. The Maya would speak their language and maybe one or two other Mayan languages so that they could deal within their communities, but they also had to speak Spanish. And then more recently, they've had to speak English and Japanese because those are the big funding sources. Wow, I didn't know that. Right, and it turns out that uh, Sweden, Norway, and Germany have kind of stepped up since the peace accords and have been uh, giving more money, but those uh, organizations have either been able to speak English or Spanish to people, and so there are all of these other uh, things that the Maya needed to do. But in the meantime, the hegemonic group, the Spanish speakers, haven't bothered to learn indigenous languages. And so when we talk about bilingual education in the non-Maya schools, we're talking about learning Spanish and English or Spanish and German or Spanish and French. But if you talk about in a Maya school, you're talking about an indigenous language and, uh, and Spanish. And so Dr. Cochti was saying this puts an unfair burden on the indigenous people to have to learn more languages. And so he, he actually made the suggestion that we should just cut the ta- chase and start speaking only Japanese and English. Well, I know in, in, we have this problem in Bantayan as well, because uh, one of the reasons that so many people in Bantayan are sad about the loss of their language is because they, number one, they have to learn Cebuano to be able to learn to read because that's what all the textbooks are in. And number two, they want economic abilities and economic uh, advantages. And so they go to Cebu to school and they learn Cebuano and they come home and they won't speak Cebuano. They won't, uh, they won't speak Bateano. And then on top of all that, the Philippines is so influenced by English because they've chosen to make English um, more of a lingua franca or, you know, a, a official language that um, and then the influence from the United States and from everywhere else, it's like they have very little motivation to to learn to speak Pantayano. And in the end, they feel like they don't even need to. It, it's it's, it's, right. it's very problematic when this world is globalizing and the economies are becoming so the big economies are becoming so influential that it becomes a major problem. Okay, we're going to leave it there for this episode. We hope you enjoyed it, and we hope that you'll tune in for part two. Honestly, depending on how we decide to edit the rest of the interview, there may even be a part three. But in closing, remember to check out the show notes at weeklylinguist.com. There you will find further information about this episode, like more information about the guest, uh, a selected bibliography, any resources mentioned in this episode. You can also subscribe to the podcast on your favorite podcast platform like iTunes, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, and others, with more being added as we go along. 
just check us out at weeklylinguist.com. Also, as the saying goes, if you enjoyed the podcast, tell a friend. If you didn't, please tell us. You can tell a friend by writing us five stars on iTunes and by writing a glowing endorsement in the reviews. Don't forget to subscribe when you're done. And follow us on Instagram or Twitter at Weekly Linguist. Honestly, we're new at this, and we know we can always improve. So for any feedback, positive or critical, write to us at podcast at weeklylinguist.com. Tell us what you think. What are we doing well? What can we do better? Even suggest a new topic for an upcoming episode. And as always, to the listeners, love linguistics, love languages, Leslie Bontorgoulet.